Hey Whiskey Ringers, it is the end of spring and almost into summer, and I have some big updates for you. First off, in case you haven't heard, we are going to be doing our first ever Whiskey Ring Podcast Barrel Pick. It is going to be not one, but two barrels of Jack Daniels Barrel Proof Rye straight from Lynchburg. And if that wasn't incentive enough, one of your fellow patrons, a patron at the $25 level, is going to be joining me for the pick. This is going to be the first pick of many. If you want your chance to be part of a pick team, this is the perfect time to up that Patreon pledge to $25. There are only four spots available at that tier. Next up is an upcoming event that I am super excited about. This is going to be the first ever virtual tasting with Riachi Distillery in Lebanon. I got to try these guys when they were in the U.S. for just a couple of days, and this is some phenomenal whiskey. They are the only distillery actively making whiskey in Lebanon right now, and this is a tasting you're just not going to want to miss. The event is on June 17th. Make sure to order by June 10th. If you are a patron or supporter or a member of the Whiskey Ringers group on Facebook, make sure to use that discount code at checkout to get your 15% off. Hope to see you there, and thank you so much for supporting. Now, here's another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. I almost slipped my, my words right out of the gate on that one, but I am thrilled to welcome on Murphy Quint from Cedar Ridge Distillery in Iowa. Murphy, welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So I uh, first got to talk about Cedar Ridge uh, about midpoint last year, I got in touch with the folks over at Lost Lantern, you know, Adam and Nora. And I got to try your Cedar Ridge single malt. And I believe, I don't have it in front of me, I believe it was sherry finished, yep. if I remember correctly. Um, and I just remember it being a fudge bomb. <laughs> so so much chocolate in there. Yep, that, yeah. uh, that is actually one of my favorite things that has ever come out of this distillery. There's kind of a, a funny story behind it. But uh, yeah, I, I am so proud of that bottle. And uh I had a menorah or without question, some of the best in this industry. And man, do they know what they're doing? They do. I'm excited to uh, explore the collection. Do you have, do you know if you have a bottle coming up with them anytime soon? Oh, uh, we do actually have a couple bottles coming up with them soon. I don't, I don't want to get into what they are because I don't think they've really uh, released it yet, but we have uh, multiple barrels that um, from Cedar Ridge that they're currently sitting on and uh, should be good additions to their collection among obviously many of the others. I, I'm a, I'm a huge Los Lander fan. So, uh, <laughs> Pretty much everything they do, I geek out about. Um, but no, I'm I'm really excited to be part of their portfolio, especially some of these upcoming releases. Awesome, awesome. Well, with that, let's uh, get down to business. So, All right. first off, I mean Iowa is definitely more than any other state, and perhaps more than any other country, corn capital of the world. Yes, sir. Yet, despite that, you were the first distillery legally, at least in Iowa since prohibition. Let's explore that a little bit. Cause it, to me, that seems like you have so much of something that's right there. And yet, you know, the distilling all went South of you guys. So what kind of walk through the Iowa history there? I mean, yeah, it's, it's really bizarre that we were, we we're the first people to kind of hop on that. Um, I'll, I'll start by saying that both my parents, I mean, my family has deep, ag roots. Uh, both my parents grew up on farms in Winthrop, Iowa. Uh, they, My parents both lived in Winthrop, Iowa, a town of 600 people. That's where they met. So 
um, deep ag roots. And uh, obviously this industry is very tied to that. And I think it was just kind of a natural progression, but I, I'll say that, uh, you know, Cedar Ridge has a very long history. We, we opened up back in 2005, um, which at least for the craft or micro distilling movement, that's, that's pretty ancient. Um, a lot has happened over the last few years and uh, we've been around since 2005, which is quite, quite fun. But uh, um, I, when we started to focus on on corn, which was so incredibly obvious, but uh, it was right in front of us and we didn't always see it, believe it or not. When we started to focus on the corn, that's when things really changed for Cedar Ridge. Um, I'll kind of back up. Uh, when we opened up in 2005, we were mainly a winery. Um, uh, we differentiated our winery by also being a distillery. You know, there were a bunch of Iowa wineries at that point in time. And what was our hook? Well, we're also producing some vodka and some brandy and things like that. So, you know, uh, while you come out to our winery, you can try those things. And it was just kind of a unique differentiator. Uh, prior to us being a, a winery, we were just a vineyard. Now, my parents wanted to start a vineyard kind of as a, a lifestyle and a passion project. So they were working on that in 2001, 2002, 2003. So uh, we were very great focused early on and uh, it made a ton of sense and it was, it was really enjoyable. However, as time went on, uh, I mentioned that we had that distillery that we were mainly using as a differentiator. Uh, my dad primarily had a little bit of a light bulb moment and that's, gosh, we're, we're in the middle of corn country. I mean, we're in the corn capital of the world right here in Iowa, um, yet no one here is making bourbon. We have literally everything we need to do so. Uh, let's, let's explore that a little bit. And so we did. Um, that's, we started laying down a little bit of bourbon. Um, at this point in time in, our, in kind of the development of our business, we really lacked focus as a lot of craft or micro distilleries did back in uh, the early 2000s. I mean, it was very much Let's put, let's put a decent amount of bourbon away, but let's put a little bit of brandy away, a little bit of rum away, um, mainly because it'd be nice for our customers to have when they come to our tasting room or, you know, we distributed to a few very small locations at that point in time. And, you know, we could bring in revenue that way. So I was, we really lacked focus, but as time went on, the Iowan consumer uh, really came out and supported our bourbon. Obviously uh, there are a ton of farmers here that wanted to support it. Uh, there's, there's so much Iowan pride and pretty much everyone uh, in our area got really excited about it and, and started buying bottles of it. So every time that would happen, obviously we had more revenue coming in so we could put more bourbon away. And when you fast forward to today, uh, we have evolved from a garage distillery that we started out in. We were uh, in, a, in a literal garage in downtown Cedar Rapids from about 2005 to 2008 uh, to now in March of 2023. We're on a 70-acre campus, and we're putting away a little over 200 barrels every single month. So um, all that really comes from the fact that uh, we, we embraced what we had out here, and that's, that is Iowa corn. Um, we'll talk about our climate a little bit as this goes on, I'm sure, but we've also embraced the, the temperature fluctuations in the state of Iowa and utilized those in our, uh, our aging process. So yeah, the, the corn, the soil, the great state of Iowa, it's, it's had everything to do with our success. So, as you said, you're, you know, in 2005, starting a distillery as part of starting a winery would have been one of the earliest craft distilleries in the country. Uh, so, again, with, with that huge gap in, let's say, Iowa distilling history, yeah. um, I'm still curious to know, like, why, why there was no kind of, like, was there any legislation against it? I know some states didn't allow distillation for a while. and. Mm. And then the flip side yeah. of that being, you know, like where, who'd you look to 
to uh, figure out what to do. Um, yeah, that, that was very much the case. It, uh, it was just, it was really unknown, especially in our area. I mean, we had seen a few distilleries pop up mainly, mainly on the coast. Um, what one that I'm a huge fan of is Clear Creek um, out, out in Oregon. Um, you know, that they were around, uh, like St. George was around. Um, so there were, there were a few distilleries around, but it was, it was really unknown. As a matter of fact, back then they weren't even called craft distilleries. It was all still micro distilleries. Like that term hadn't even uh, been used yet, but yeah, in the state of Iowa, like this was a, this was a big question mark. I mean, <laughs> uh, people were very confused by what we're doing and, and why we were doing it. It was, it was, uh, people thought it was just completely bizarre. Uh, so credit to my parents on that, uh, taking the risks, but, um, yeah, when we, when we did this in 2005, I mean, my dad, I mean, he was driving to the state capitol constantly uh, lobbying to try to get laws changed so that we could even do it. Um, there hadn't been a distillery in Iowa since uh, pre-prohibition and post-prohibition. There were a bunch of laws that just never really got changed back. And that's, that's kind of the case throughout the entire country. I mean, obviously, prohibition went away, but that doesn't mean that every state, you know, just boom, started to open distilleries again. I mean, that, that really happened in, in the early to mid uh, 2000, so 2000 to 2005, 2010, and that and that uh, area is when some of these distilleries started popping up. So in pretty much every state, people were going to lobbying to try to get that right. And in the state of Iowa, that was that was very much my dad. There were a couple others out here that have done it too. Um, uh, you know, uh, Templeton Rye, Mississippi River Distilling. Um, you know, they they were a part of that as well. But uh, a lot of effort was put into getting the right to do that, and that's been a common theme throughout the history of Cedar Ridge. I mean, once we were able to distill, it wasn't until I think uh, like like 2012 or 2011, don't quote me on the exact year, but uh, when we could actually sell a bottle out of our own distillery's tasting room. So people would come to our distillery because we had a restaurant and, uh, you know, they'd have food, they'd, they'd check out our product and they could have our wine. But if we poured them a sample of our vodka or our gin or whatever it was at that time and they liked it. They'd say, oh, you know, I'd like to buy a bottle of this. And then we'd say, well, about, you know, 10 miles down the street, there's a liquor store and you can go there and you can buy the product. Um, so we had to lobby to get the right to even sell our own product out of our own company. And then, I mean, after that, it wasn't until uh, like 2015, 2016, when we could start making cocktails on site and actually serving our product. So this is all still very new. And, and that's not necessarily unique to Iowa. Pretty much every state has dealt with that. Uh, we have the added uh, complexity of also being a controlled state. So in, in the state of Iowa, everything's distributed uh, through the state of Iowa, um, through the government. So uh, that has added some hiccups, both both pros and cons, I should say. But uh, yeah, it's been it's been a long journey to get to where we are. We still have, I'm sure, you know, there's going to be things that we work to get changed as we move forward. Hopefully one day, uh, maybe a little bit of direct consumer and stuff along those lines. But uh, yeah, uh, my dad specifically worked very hard in order to uh, to even get the ability to do the to do what we're doing here. Yeah, and we have heard that with some other states. I mean, just talking Michigan, Wisconsin, the Upper Midwest. A lot of the, the distillers I've spoken to had to, I think, as you do too, for cocktails, you got to make anything that has alcohol in it yourself. Um, you know, yes, that's they, that's, uh, that's here as well. Um, yep, and uh, I think. I think the state that had it latest, at least that I can remember offhand, was um, talking to Clyde Mays in Alabama, where they weren't allowed to distill until like 2015, legally. Mm-hmm. So didn't <laughs> yeah. stop them apparently, but well, not them, but their family didn't stop them. But yeah, um, yeah. So it's yeah, it's it's certainly 
a changing landscape. And to that end, a little bit later, uh, definitely going to talk to you about the single malt because that's oh, yeah. come a long way. We got something promising coming, but absolutely. Um, actually, you know, let me. I'll skip to the single malt for just one question. Yeah. For now, and then we'll, I'll uh, swing back to it. So, you know, this is a very broad question, but kind of what is it? What does it feel like to be a single malt producer, despite the fact you're producing bourbon too? What does it feel like being a single malt producer in the corn capital of the world? Uh, yeah, that that <laughs> that's a tough question. Um, the single malt thing is very bizarre. I mean. Uh, pretty much everything else we do makes perfect sense here. I mean, we're a winery distillery combination, obviously uh, heavily, you know, off balance to the distillery side. We're much more of a, more of a distillery than, than a winery as far as uh, sales, dis- distribution and revenue go. But uh, our distillery is obviously very focused on bourbon because here we are in the state of Iowa surrounded by corn. So obviously our, our wine production, because of our vineyards makes sense, our bourbon production because of our corn makes perfect sense. But uh, meanwhile, here we are in the middle of Iowa, also producing uh, an American single malt whiskey, specifically one that is going to drink similar to a scotch. I mean, we've, we've really designed it that way. So it, um, it doesn't fit in uh, to the extent that our bourbon or our wine do, but that's kind of why it's fun. Um, at Cedar Ridge, one thing that we really take pride in is, is our range, our ability to uh, produce uh, cool and interesting products in unique ways that don't always make sense for us to produce. I mean, like I said, it doesn't really make sense for us to make single malt here. Uh, but I think an, an added element to it would be that uh, uh, both my dad and I have a deep passion for it. Um, and, and I should also mention a number of our employees also really enjoy single malt here. Uh, we have uh, we have about 60 employees, uh, 30 of them are, are full-time. So we've got a fairly sizable staff and we're always wanting to do cool new things and single malt had been something that had been requested for quite a long time. So uh, just the passion between my family, our, our team, and then, uh, you know, also throw my background in there a little bit. Uh, in uh, 2010 and 2014, that's the only period of Cedar Ridge's history where I wasn't here. Um, I took a little, little break and moved out to Colorado with my girlfriend at the time, my wife now. And uh, while I was there, I worked at Stranahan's Colorado Whiskey for a few years. And it uh, awesome place. Still to this day, one of my favorite distilleries on the planet. Uh, a lot of positive memories there, but that is an American single malt whiskey distillery. And that is where I kind of cut my teeth on whiskey production. At Cedar Ridge prior to that, obviously I had a lot of experience with, with a whole bunch of things that we were making, but uh, Stranahan's was a well-oiled machine cranking out single malt around the clock. And it was just so beautiful to see that. And that kind of stayed in me. So, uh, you know, that that wasn't any by any means the reason why we produced single malt at Cedar Ridge. We had been doing it uh, prior to the time that I worked there, but uh, that got me all the more fired up to be a part of it and to be a part of the American single malt movement, which has a ton of momentum right now and a ton of promise. Uh, lastly, I'll mention uh, my personal favorite thing about it. And one thing why we just all get so excited about it around here is just uh, the range of whiskey that you can create within the American single malt, uh, American single malt whiskey category is incredible. Uh, you know, utilizing different malts, different finishing casks, you know, you can have, you can have a peat element to it. So it can be smoky or not. Uh, uh, there's just, there's so much room for artistic input within that category as a craft distiller or whatever you want to call us. It's just, it's very difficult to not get enamored by that and not want to hop on board that movement. So a number of things kind of led to us doing that, but 
uh, you know, when you kind of simplify it, it's just, Hey, we're a bunch of people that, that like to have fun and, and make whiskey. And that's just such an awesome category. We had to be a part of it. It makes sense here. When you, I mean, this is back on, uh, back in July, 2020, you were on single malt matters. Yeah. And, um, at the, at the time you'd said you wanted to move, uh, American single malt ASM forward. And clearly a lot of things have changed since then, you know, two and a half years later, we're hopefully knock on wood, um, <laughs> you know, a couple months away from getting formal right re- regulations or standards of identity. Uh, we're, you know, we've been saying that for six and a half, seven years now, but we're trying, um, but still there, there is movement there. And there seems to be, despite the lack of kind of a federal recognition as of yet, mm-hmm. there is movement on the industry side and you've, pretty much speak yeah. as a single voice. Um, but as, as Cedar Ridge, as one distillery, I'm curious what your experience has been as these standards of identity have been formed and molded and all of that into what they could be, what they are for the industry and what they could be on the legal level. Yeah. Yeah. It's bizarre. I mean, one of my favorite things about this category is that while the feds are kind of dragging their feet, making an official category, um, uh, producers are not waiting. You know, we're we're just we're just going. Um, we're we're gonna we're not gonna let that slow us down. Um, you know, single malt is is a global category. Uh, bourbon bourbon is specific to the United States of America. You can't make it anywhere else. Single malt is global in the sense that pretty much every country on this on this planet is pumping out really cool single malts. Obviously, we all know Scotch uh, from Scotland. We all know Irish whiskey. We know Japanese Taiwan. You know. Indian, it's coming from everywhere right now. And I think it's just such a shame that uh, we're, we're not embracing the United States on a bigger level here. We have so many things going for us on that front that we can utilize and put out really cool products that we can export and that uh, people in Japan are going to want to try. People in, in, in even Scotland are going to want to try American single malt. So uh, anyway, I, I don't know. It's just, it's a really great category. I'm, I'm really excited about it. I think it's a shame that uh, it's not officially in play yet but i do have a ton of pride in the fact that uh the distillers we're not waiting we're, we're just going for it and we are making a lot of progress um as to your question about like the difficulties of the difficulties of it though uh one of the things that comes with not being an official category is that consumers don't really understand it yet because they're because american single malt whiskey is not technically a recognized form of whiskey in the united states because of that, in retail environments and on bars, uh, you don't see an American single malt whiskey section. And so that creates a, a barrier between us and the consumer. You know, you walk down the aisles, you, you walk through the bourbon section, you walk through the rum section, the red wine section. Well, it, there should be an American single malt whiskey section. There's enough of us out, out here producing it now. Uh, and there's some really good offerings that there should be that section. And since there's not, uh, people are not seeing it. They're not getting that repetition. They're not seeing the words American single malt whiskey. And because of that, they're not going home and reading about it and, and being educated on it. So there, there is a little bit of a barrier there. But the fact that um, I think in the, in the commission itself, there's 104 members now, but there's like 350 people pro- or distilleries producing it in the United States. Because so many of us are working so hard on it, uh, we're, kind of, we're kind of putting in the legwork and, and making it happen anyway it's just uh you know we feel like we're this process is kind of being delayed i think five six years ago uh this could have really boomed back then um had 
had the feds made this an official category, but since it hasn't been yet, it's just off to a slightly slower start. There are pros and cons that come out of that though. I mean, um, you know, we're putting away, we're still all putting the whiskey away. It's getting a little bit older and a little bit better every year. And uh, we're doing some really creative things. And so as, as people get on board with it, they're going to be exposed to a whole bunch of fun single malts that are out there. Um, for those people listening, if you haven't explored American single malt whiskey, get out there and check it out. Uh, bourbon is awesome. I, I run a bourbon distillery. Uh, that's, that's what pays our bills. It's fantastic. So I'll never knock it. But single malt, there's just so much to explore. The way I always say it is if uh, 20 distilleries make, make bourbon, um, you're, the range, it's hard to do this on a Zoom where people can't see my hands, but the range is only going to be so big. It's only going to be this big, um, you know, as far as differentiation goes. But when it comes to American single malt, uh, if 20 different distilleries produce American single malt, they will be this big. That's much further away. My hands are much further apart right now for those who can't see. Um, it, it's just uh, there, there's so much room for differentiation. That's mainly because the language within that category it puts everyone on a level playing field. The rules put everyone on a level playing field, but anything outside of that is kind of open to interpretation. It's open to your artistic input. And that's what I like. The other categories, bourbon and rye, they can get fairly restrictive and it can make differentiation kind of complicated and difficult. So it's a category that, that is coming. It's, it's a little bit delayed because it hasn't been uh, made official yet, but I, I, like you said, we've all been saying for a few years now, I do believe by summer this year, it's going to happen. Your mouth to the TTB's ears. <laughs> so uh, jumping back to the bourbon for a little bit. So with your, with the mash bill that you're using 74% corn uh, as your base mash bill, yeah. what, what flavors are you targeting? Like what do you consider your house style to be? And I'm asking this before I put out like my tasting notes or what I think I got in it. What are you aiming for people to get? Um, well, so w without, <clears throat> without diving into individual notes and characteristics, which I, I hope you do a little bit. Um, I, I always like for the person consuming it to do that without me uh, breaking down what it's going to taste like, because uh, if I do that, you're, you're going to taste exactly what I'll say, <clears throat> excuse me. But uh, one, one thing that we're always going for is um, to be on the approachable side of whiskey. Um, we, we want a whiskey that's, that's definitely going to hold up. You know, we're not, we're not making a whiskey light here or anything like that. But what I'm saying is whether it's uh, our original 86, which is 86 proof, or, or our barrel proof bourbon, which is something that uh, we released fairly recently and is going really well for us. Um, we, even if it's that barrel proof bourbon, we want it to be easily enjoyed at 116 proof, uh, where normally that can get quite hot and quite aggressive. I, I hope that as we taste through it, you'll see that today. Uh, we want it to be an enjoyable product. And so what, what we do is uh, uh, we have a process that we'll, we'll dive into as this goes on, I'm sure. And we have about three or four things that we do in our process that are going to contribute to that slightly more approachable and delicate flavor profile that just creates a little bit, um, I don't want, maybe not easier experience, but more enjoyable experience. The flavor is still there. Um, you know, you can really, you can really dive into it and, uh, and, and, and make notes on, on what you're coming up with, on what you're tasting, flavor and aroma. Uh, but it's not going to be that overly bold punch in the mouth that some, some others are that you try out there on that market. So we're going for something that's always going to be very approachable and inviting. The way that we always say it is uh, approachable and inviting, like the people who make it. Um, you know, we, we kind of make, a, we make an Iowa bourbon, very similar to the Iowan people. Very nice, very approachable. 
uh, full of character and um, a fun experience. So uh, when we when we taste through it here, you know, I'll, I'll kind of dive into the uh, the individual notes. I'm sure you will too, but that's what we're going for. Yeah, I mean, let's go into it. I, I uh, enjoyed my pour beforehand just because I okay, had to keep yep. my voice going. But um, <laughs> but no, I, I did. So I've gotten to try the um, Barrowproof Bourbon. Yep. Uh, also your American Single Malt, the Quintessential. And if you're listening, yes, that does include the name. It wasn't their intent originally, but it worked. It, they got around, they came around to it. Um, <laughs> it's a great interview with, um, I think it was either the Whiskey Wash or Whiskey Consensus, where um, yeah. you said it wasn't originally part of it, but it just kind of, and you hated it at first, but it just kind uh, of worked eventually. Yeah, that, um, that our team, our yeah, just to kind of touch on yeah. that, the, the name of our American single malt whiskey is the quintessential. And obviously, uh, my family's last name is Quint, so in a way, it's a, a play on words. Um, and when that name was originally thought up, it was not thought up by by my dad, nor I, or or my mom, or anyone else involved. Um, that was thought up by some other people, and and they mentioned it to us. And the initial reaction was, we just absolutely hated it. Um, we're we're fairly modest folk out here, and to and to you know put our our name on it uh, felt a little weird and. Uh, you know, it's like, is that overly fancified? We, we didn't really know. So it really bothered us at first, but uh, the rest of the team of our directors in particular, they kept kind of saying, ah, you should, you should really reconsider that. You might have something here. And over time, it kind of grew on us. And, uh, and here we are today, uh, still pumping out quintessential American single malt. And uh, we've come around on the name, we've embraced it. And now it's something that uh, we're obviously extremely proud of. Hey, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, so, so right. So I tried the, right. The Bowerproof bourbon, the quintessential at uh, 92. Yep. And then obviously the single barrel that I, I had from Lost Lantern. So um, I, I guess in fairness, I haven't tried the kind of the Cedar Ridge at 86 proof. 86. Yep. Um, but the Bowerproof was, I mean, on just being honest, I'm, I would probably like the barrel proof more anyway for the bourbon, at least. Yeah. The single malt is a different story, but for Amer- for bourbons, I'm I just almost always like the higher proof. Uh, now, that and, and just to touch on that, um, that that is something that is obviously that's a big movement right now, having a higher proof um, barrel proof or or cask strength bourbons. Uh, that's that's super hot right now. I happen to be uh, just like you on that. Um, if I'm going to buy a bourbon off the shelf, I mean it, it's. It's definitely going to be north of 100, probably north of 110. That's what I'm looking for. Um, you know, as you as you really explore this category, it's hard to not search for something that is as flavorful as possible. And obviously, the higher the proof, the the less cut and watered down it's going to be. For those who don't know, uh, say whiskey comes out of the barrel at at 120 proof or whatever it might come out at, um, to get it down to to 92 or to 100 or whatever you bottle it at, all you do is you add um, water purified water uh, to dilute it down and when you do that you're going to end up cutting the flavor and uh, it usually it makes it a little bit less harsh harsh so a little bit more approachable but it's also going to dilute that flavor profile and so uh, as you um, you know get more exposure to the bourbon category uh, typically you're going to end up going for something that has a little bit more flavor as could be expected and so that's why this this barrel proof movement is a big thing right now however here at Cedar Ridge it's um it's kind of a, a delicate topic because uh, we obviously very much want to support that. That's why we have a barrel proof bourbon, but our original 86, that's our flagship. And that's, that's what put us on the map. Um, in, in Iowa, uh, this, is, this is actually really big, whether it sounds big or not, 
in the state of Iowa, we are the number one selling bourbon. Um, our, our 86 proof bourbon, we sell more of that than Maker's Mark sells, than Jim Beam, than Bullet, or any other bourbon. And we're the, uh, we're the first bourbon outside of Kentucky to do that in any state, to, to, to claim that, to be the number one selling bourbon in any state. And so that's obviously a, a huge thing. However, um, out of state where we're trying to grow and we're trying to enter new markets, things have shifted. You know, when we introduced the 86 proof a number of years ago, 86 proof bourbon was kind of the norm. And as we try to expand in, in markets, you know, say Texas or Florida, or even in our neighboring market, uh, Chicago, the state of Illinois, obviously, um, we, we have to kind of do a different approach that it's going to be hard to, to introduce the Cedar Ridge brand on an 86 proof bourbon and target certain consumers because they've kind of developed a palette is a little bit more experienced and is going to appreciate something higher proof. So now we, uh, we have introduced both to the market and we're building both at the same time. But I wanted to mention that, that uh, the, the house we've built is really built on our 86 proof bourbon. And uh, we're excited to also offer now a barrel proof that's a little bit more modernized to the, the modern um, expert whiskey drinkers palate. Sure, and yeah, as we're, uh, as we're recording, we're recording towards the end of March uh, and uh, just about a week ago, Fred Minnick posted about the barrel proof bourbon coming out and, you know, in listening to uh, doing research and listening to podcasts and reading interviews in preparation for this, I kind of got to see the trend of, and the story of how you started with the 86, well, really started with the 80 and then the 86, and then yep. eventually got to this point now where you're releasing the barrel proof. Yeah. And it was interesting because it was interesting for a lot of reasons, but the one that I wanted to pull out was that um, on in, in listening through the story over, let's say, two to three years, you mentioned early on, you know, people like Fred, also Whiskey Advocate, uh, were saying that your bourbon is a cast strength bourbon. It's one yeah. of those bourbons that you just know is going to be good, uh, maybe even, if you will, better at cast strength or at a higher strength. Now, having said that, and I know it might be too early to ask this because it's it's a relatively new release, but yeah. um, you know you have the these very loud, very important voices saying that it's a barrel-proof whiskey that it should be a barrel-proof bourbon. Yeah, was that also borne out by the people walking through your doors, trying your products, and now starting to buy those products, or is it more a case, or was was there a dissonance or disconnect there? Um, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it's really, it's really, uh, you know, the culmination of a, a lot of different things. Um, uh, one, you, you mentioned Fred Minnick, and that is a very important part of this is that, um, you know, he's, he's one of the biggest names in this game as far as uh, reviewers or influencers or whatever you want to call them go. Um, and he's been out here a number of times. And every time we taste through the barrels, he would, he would say that, you know, what, what are you guys doing with this 86? Like, uh, your, your bourbon is best straight from the barrel. And uh, that was always a really, really good compliment. Um, uh, and, you know, that's something that kind of carried on with a bunch of other people too, that I, obviously we do a bunch of single barrel tastings. We sell a lot of single barrels uh, through retailers throughout the state of Iowa, as well as uh, the Midwest in general. Uh, that's where most of our footprint is, is throughout the Midwest. So uh, we sell a lot of single barrels to these people. And every time that we'd bust one open and we drink from it, that'd be kind of the feedback that we got is, wow. Um, you know, I can't believe this is 120 proof or 116 proof or whatever it might be. It drinks like it's 80 or maybe not 80. It drinks like it's 90 or, or 95, you know, um, 80 is probably a bit of a stretch, but uh, basically the point was, you know, we're drinking cast strength 
bourbon, but it's not harsh. It's, it's, it's very mellow. It's uh, full of flavor, but it's still kind of inviting. And, and that's something that's fairly uncommon. Um, you know, that, that's a flavor profile that we're always going for. But when we've talked about it in the past, it's mainly been around our 86. And it's been really cool to see that fold up at, at cast strength at our, our, our barrel proof offerings, 116 proof. And uh, when you try it, um, it truly, it, it's going to drink closer to a hundred. Um, it's a really enjoyable experience. So yeah, it, that did come from a number of different people, one very much being Fred. Um, but uh, you know, the, it's complicated because uh, it, when you, when you release your initial flagship bourbon, you know, ours was the 86 proof bourbon, you can't just you can't just change it. You know, it's it's not something that it's 86 proof today, and uh, you know what? We'll make it. We'll do 100 proof tomorrow. Let's just change it. That that is something that we did um, like uh, almost 10 years ago. We had an 80 proof bourbon, like you mentioned, and we we moved it to 86. And that sounds so simple to just change it, but it's it's complicated because you have price structures and, and costs, and um, your customers are expel- expecting a certain shelf price when they go to the store and they see it. And if you change the proof, you're changing all of that. What, what a lot of people don't realize is in a bottle, um, in a bottle of whiskey, what you're actually paying for is the alcohol in it. The, the alcohol is where all the expenses. Um, and, and uh, so, yeah, anyway, to just, to just release a product that all of a sudden has a lot more alcohol in it, but keep the same shelf price is almost impossible because you're sacrificing margins. So uh, we could never really figure out how to slowly get that proof up to where we wanted it to be. And ultimately what we decided to do is finally just release two different products. That's something that we've been hesitant to do because uh, our, our original 86 has obviously gained a lot of popularity and, and, and kind of built the house that we know, and we didn't want to overshadow that. But um, ultimately we think that they can both have a, a place on the shelf and, and uh, consumers can enjoy it at both proofs. And uh, that way we can get the 86 and the 116 out there. Do you, this is usually this answer to this question is no, but there have been a couple of yeses. So I got to <laughs> ask this one. Um, are there any uh, market differences between the barrel proof and the 86 insofar as different processes or anything like that? Or is it simply the 86 is the proof down version of the 116? That, that's a great question. I'm actually really glad you asked that uh, for us. For us, no. Um, no, it, it is the exact same. Um, you know, I, I have the pleasure of tasting every barrel that uh, we end up bottling. So, you know, I, I obviously take a lot of pride in the barrel proof and I might be a little bit more restrictive over which, which barrels ultimately make it into that batch. Um, you know, I, I want to make sure it's of the highest quality, obviously. Um, but outside of that, no, it, it, any barrel bourbon that we have on the property could ultimately go to the 86 or to the 116. So it is the same process. It's the same mash bill. It's just um, we're we're bottling at two different proofs, mainly so that cons- cons- mainly so that the consumer can see uh, the difference between proofs. I mean that that's something that's really exciting. And when you have them side by side, you'll see that they taste very different from one another. All that is happening there is that uh, one of them one of them's at 86 and one's at 116. You'd be very surprised if you haven't tried it. Uh, for the people listening out there, how different one or two proof points can can make a whiskey taste. I mean, if you have a dram of whiskey in front of you right now and you put one or two drops of water in it, swirl it around, it will taste fairly different. So um, our 116 versus 86, it's the exact same stuff. It's going to taste very different because certain flavors 
are going to present themselves at different proofs. So um, it, it might taste slightly different because of that, but no, exact same barrels, exact same mash bill. And it will have a slight difference in process just because, like you said, you're you're tasting every barrel. Yep. So within that, in a way, the uh, consumer is kind of it's putting their trust in you that the barrels you're selecting for the barrel proof are going to be the clearest, most yep. You know, the clearest, best examples of what the whiskey can be or is at barrel proof as well, just exactly like the, right. the independent bottlers as well. Yeah, it's exactly right. Well, then <laughs> we've, we put our trust in you and keep it going because the barrel that I, <laughs> the batch that I tried was fantastic. Um, okay, I, you. yeah, I, I thought it drank, it was 116, it, it drank, um, yeah, between like a 110, 115, so right in yeah. that range, Good. but still quite approachable uh roasted corn forward sometimes on sometimes on bourbons you can get a young corn note where it just tastes too fresh like it's right off the cob or right out right off the cob no right off the stalk i'm thinking um either way either way either one works either either way works i guess but um no this didn't taste like like you were eating the kernels it was very much like it was clearly corn but cooked and aged and matured and all that so um for me, I like that because I like knowing what's in the glass and I like knowing what grain I'm drinking. Yep. You know, I, I like to taste things blind, but I also like to know like, all right, this is definitely a rye. This is definitely a bourbon. This is definitely not one of those things. Exactly. Um, so uh, with, so between, so actually going back a little bit to um, the, no, you know what? I take that back. An audience is, I'm sorry, you're going to kill me because I do this all the time, but I'm going to mix oh. up the question a little bit. So uh, I've spoken to a bunch of other distilleries, particularly smaller ones, more locally focused ones yep. that uh, have their big goal is to own their backyard. Yes. You know, they want to own, for example, uh, Vigel in Pittsburgh. They want to own Western Pennsylvania and south- Southwestern Pennsylvania. That was just the one that came to mind as I was writing the question. And but also there, I've talked to some who are kind of satisfied with that goal. Like we want to own this. We don't want to go over a certain volume. We, you know, we, we like where we're at. So with Cedar Ridge, clearly you've, you were winning and now you've, you've won Iowa in a way. Yep. Um, and which I still think that's an incredible statistic that you first yeah. to, you know, outside the Kentucky whiskeys and Kentucky bourbons. Um, so you've, achieve that and you're still growing yep. so clearly your ambitions for the brands go beyond that so what kind of is the next milestone that that you want to achieve um yeah great question and and this is something that's uh, very important to me personally and very important to uh pretty much everyone at cedar ridge especially our team of directors um we are very passionate about about not only putting Iowa on the map, but the Midwest in general. Um, as as lifelong Midwesterners, uh, you know you can't help but from time to time being a little bit bothered by the fact that uh, everyone everyone discounts the Midwest. Um, you know, people call us flyover country and uh, or or drive through country. Um, and I, I listen, I get it. Um, I, I love the coast, both east and west. I really enjoy them, but. Uh, there's so much cool stuff going on in the Midwest and specifically Iowa. Uh, very beautiful landscapes. Uh, we have so much going on here and uh, and people, it's like they're not willing to come out and see it. And so what we want to do is we we want to bring it to people. We want 
we want to do something really cool here in the Midwest, in the state of Iowa, uh, that kind of opens people's eyes to that. Hey, uh, you know, we've got this really cool distillery going on. Uh, for those of you who haven't been to Cedar Ridge in, in Swisher, Iowa, the small town of Swisher, uh, it's a very beautiful landscape out here. Uh, like I said, we have a 70-some a acre campus, a really cool event center, uh, awesome, awesome food. Uh, you know, I like to think that the whiskey and wine is the best thing we do, but the, the food is right up there with it. Uh, we've got a lot of cool stuff going on that, that people can see out here that they would be excited by. And so anyway, what we want to do, since we can't always just bring everyone here, we kind of want to bring it to them. And we want to leave a legacy of, of whiskey in the Midwest, um, obviously specifically focused on Iowa. And that's what we're setting out to do. So uh, um, you'll see us right now. We've got full-time reps uh, working uh, the state of Minnesota, Illinois, uh, Wisconsin, um, but Nebraska, Kansas, Missouri, and the Dakotas. Uh, you know, we have a few others out there too, but we're really focused. Uh, I, I can't forget Indiana. I, the reason I mentioned the other ones is because they're, they're the surrounding states, but we're also really working Indiana in there too, because we think that um, it, it's a relevant market to what we're trying to accomplish. But uh, we're trying to, to focus on these states that are often just kind of overlooked. Um, there's so much cool stuff going on in them. But everyone's focused on the bright lights of New York City and everyone, you know, everyone wants to get distribution in L.A. And, um, you know, everyone, everyone wants to go into the heart of Chicago and get to the, the, the top on-premise accounts. And like I said, that all makes sense to me, but there's so much value in the other Midwestern states. And that's why we're focusing on those. So um, we are we are gearing up to hit it pretty hard. Like I said earlier, we're we're producing about 200 barrels a month. Um, right now, we're only emptying about 40 to 50 barrels per month. So we're putting away a lot more than we're emptying. And the reason being, because um, we obviously want to keep inventory laying down. We want to increase our age as we move forward. We want to have different offerings. You know, our, We want to have a four-year, a, a, a six-year, an eight-year, a 10-year. And uh, so what we need to do is we need to be putting a lot of it away and only releasing a little bit. And that's kind of the strategy right now. But I'm very focused on developing this thing in the Midwest. Um, I'm, you know, I'm excited to uh, to see what history will say one day. But uh, um, in the time being, we're kind of living day by day and, and you know, open an account by account. And uh, if you're in the Midwest, hopefully you see us active in your area. And there was something that Jeff said on, your dad said on a separate podcast, separate interview, which was that he wants Cedar Ridge's legacy to be yep. the company that put Iowa on the bourbon map. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, yes. and that seems to be what you're doing. Um, look, I'm a I'm a lifelong New Yorker. I I get the big city. I get <laughs> yeah. I get that we have you know we have that trade off in um, availability where we get most of the releases. Yep, marked up. <laughs> so <laughs> yep, <laughs> um, that's just how it goes. Um, and in fairness, we don't get the distillery only releases, but you know we For sure. should find yeah. ways around that too. Um, but uh, no, I, I hear you when you when you're saying and other distilleries too, for that matter, saying that yep. the coast tend to think of anything in the Midwest especially let's say like between the Mississippi and the Rockies as flyover country. Yep. And it's a shame because of just how much comes from there, how much of our daily life comes from there, let alone oh, man. The whiskey we're talking about. So, so yeah, so I, th- I think it's great that you're, it seems like you're entering States and areas where people wouldn't necessarily think to. And I think that also presents its own kind of strategy, its own marketing opening as well. Yeah. That, that's exactly right. Yep. Um, there, there's, there's a little bit less competition um, in the area that we're focusing on, which, which is beneficial to us. But honestly, I, I trade it away. I, I, I want to see uh, more brands 
prioritize this area uh, so that consumers have have more to choose from. I'm I'm a whiskey whiskey consumer myself, and I wish there were more offerings out here. Uh, you know, really really great people out here, all that would uh, would support you know any any type of whiskey that that showed its face around here. So um, that that's something I'm obviously really passionate about. But uh, one thing one thing I didn't touch on that you also kind of mentioned is the importance of owning your backyard. And um, I, I think that on that note, there, there is nothing more important than that for, for distilleries, uh, whether they're big or small, new or old, um, owning your own market for us, once again, that's the state of Iowa. And we, we have accomplished that and we, we can't take that for granted. We need to hang on to that because at the end of the day, um, you know, those are our supporters. Those, those are the people who made us what we are. But also from from a business standpoint, I mean, we we always need to maintain that as as security. I mean, we we can take risks trying to you know hit Milwaukee hard. We can take risks hopping over to Omaha because at the end of the day, um, we have a really good support system in the state of Iowa, and we can sell the whiskey that we need to here. Um, but uh, it, it's just it's a much better model because it's not so high stakes. Um, I think that every distillery out there, very much including Cedar Ridge. Um, at, at one point has to reach for purchase orders, right? You, you start getting purchase orders in from, from regions that don't really make sense for you to distribute your product to, but you know, that the big number on the purchase order uh, is so tempting that you have to take it. I mean, you're trying to lay down more whiskey, so you need money coming in and you're kind of forced into doing it. But then what happens is you don't have the marketing resources to actually support that market. You know, for, for this one, I'll, I'll mention Louisiana, which we're not in, but I'll just name a state. If we start sending product to Louisiana and it pops up on the shelves out there, well, we, the most important thing is that we get it off the shelves in Louisiana, that we're marketing it, we're getting consumers to go buy it because if we don't do that, that product just sits on that shelf. It gets dusty. The person who bought it, the retailer who bought it doesn't sell it. So they don't get their investment back. They're now upset about it. They don't want to support our brand anymore. And before you know it, your brand is dead in the state of Louisiana. It's a very, very common trap that we see in this industry. So if you're opening up too many markets at once just to try to get some revenue coming in, it's almost always a road to nowhere um, or, or even worse. So uh, if you can own your own market and then expand from that centralized location, it's always a much smoother process. It's less expensive uh, because, you know, like I said, we're, we're, expanding in the surrounding states, we can just drive to them. You know, we, we don't have to, we don't have to fly everywhere and put a bunch of money into it. Uh, we can grow our brand from a centralized location, which just from a resource standpoint makes so much more sense. So it, it's a far safer model. And I highly recommend it to any distillery out there, own your own market. So with the, before we move over to the single malt, I do want to dive into the process a bit. Um, and I think this is going to be the the first episode that I'm going to do this with. I'm going to uh, I've made a playlist and listing of all the interviews and podcasts and such that I listen to. I'm going to put it as a link with the episode in case people want to dive uh, deeper into any particular topic that we're missing. Like obviously we're not we didn't talk a ton about the origin story in this episode. Yeah. Um, there are other things I'm sure we won't get to. That's just kind of the nature of it. But so people can see that. Um, but in terms of process, so just to bring people up to speed a little bit, you've got four stills, three that are functional for all intents and yeah. purposes. <laughs> um, but you know, three three functional stills, but um, 
you know, just take us through like, what is, I guess, what is that process? And I'll throw you the secondary part of that question right now, just so you're thinking about it. Is there any difference in how you run that process for your bourbon as opposed to your single malt? Uh, yeah, great questions. And um, we we actually, this is kind of a bizarre thing that we do here. I mean, see here is we actually uh, make our bourbon and single malt very similarly. Obviously, uh, the mash bill is going to be different. Um, you know, uh, the the mash bill for our single malt is clearly 100% malted barley, and the mash bill for our bourbon is 74% corn, 14% rye, 12% malted barley. Uh, side note on that: that malted barley content is a really fun note. It's kind of a high malted barley. Uh, content and it it does contribute to that approachable uh, softer flavor profile but uh uh yeah this here's the setup and like i said we make them both pretty much the same way um uh, we have a a mash tun obviously and from the mash tun we go to a mash filtration system which that's kind of a newer thing in our industry um it's essentially like a mash louder ton only a little bit more efficient um instead of waiting for gravity to uh, push the liquid through the grain and separate the two of them, liquid from the grain, uh, like a louder ton does. Uh, we actually use a mash filtration system that's gonna take our sopping wet grain and it uh, you know, has a bunch of screens through that press and the pressure is going to basically create grain pancakes and squeeze all the liquid out of them. So we get a really good yield, um, high sugar content. Uh, we get all the liquid out of that grain uh, to 99.9% uh, dry and uh, and then we do an off-grain fermentation. Uh, we do that obviously for our single malt, but for our bourbon as well. And that's, that's very unique in bourbon. Uh, most bourbons do an on-grain fermentation and an on-grain distillation. And so that's once again, kind of a differentiator that's gonna contribute to some of the unique, um, more unique flavor components in our final product. But so we do an off-grain fermentation and an off-grain distillation. Uh, all of our stills, as you mentioned, we have three stills. They are copper pot stills from Carl. Uh, we're, we're brand loyal to Carl. And uh, we have an 800-gallon uh, stripping still, our alpha still, and then a 200-gallon finishing still. So those are our two, two stills that we use for whiskey. In addition to that, we have a 100-gallon pot still that can be fractioned out, and we can use columns if we're doing things like vodka, gin, rum, or brandy. But uh, for the most part, we're just using these pots to distill whiskey. And uh, yeah, that, that's really the, the mash um, fermentation distillation side of things. We use the mash filtration component, off-grain fermentation, twice distilled off-grain, and then we go into barrel at 120 proof. So across the board, whether it's bourbon or single malt, our barrel entry proof is 120. I've been thinking about um, experimenting uh, by, by modifying that a little bit, barrel entry proof, just because I've been reading a lot of fun articles on that. But uh, uh, right now, it's exclusively 120 proof barrel entry. We'll get back to that because you had uh, on yeah. last year on one of my favorite named podcasts, uh, Stinker Drinker Thinker. <laughs> the, Love this guy. One of the yeah. best names. Yeah. Like kudos to those guys if they're listening. Yeah, they're um, awesome. So uh, we'll get back to the barrel entry proof in a second. So for the bourbon, obviously this makes sense for the malt, but for the bourbon, you mentioned that high malt content. Yeah. Uh, and if anything over like eight to 10%, um, yeah, you're going to, you're going to have kind of a softness to it, something that's yep. more approachable, like you said. Uh, but from a practical standpoint too, you should also in theory have enough enzymatic activity from the malt to carry through the, the 
uh, that enzymatic activity that you want. Now, are, are you finding that or do you need some extra push from either enzymes or something else to fully get that alcohol out or sorry, get the sugars out for the yeast to um, yeah, a, a little bit of both. I mean, yeah, that 12% malted barley will get it done. Um, we have used some enzymes along the way um, time to time, but uh, yeah, that, that is part of the strategy by using that, that higher malted barley content in addition to the, uh, the flavor profile that we're looking to create. So it is a little bit of both there. Gotcha. And then uh, you know, going forward to the yeast too, I mean, uh, distillers yeast, local yeast, yeast that uh, grandfather found, what, what are you using that? <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. Without, without diving too deep into that, um, you know, we don't, we don't usually get way into detail on that front. Um, we use a couple different types of yeast, um, uh, some distiller's yeast. Um, we also have a uh, traditional wine yeast element that we utilize in some of our process too. Um, like I said, I won't really elaborate on that too much because that we do feel like that is kind of a, one of the tricks to our trade here, but uh, Fair yeah. Fair enough. Everyone's uh, got proprietary I, something. So. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. No, that they, that's right. I promise you no gotcha questions. I'm not going to throw, I'm not going <laughs> to throw you into the grinder or the mash. Oh, no, I, to, so. to be honest, I, I don't think that's a gotcha question. I think that's actually a, a really good question. I'm going to, it is an important one to the, uh, the production process, obviously, just because a uh, different yeast is going to create a wildly different uh, overall uh, flavor profile, of your final product. So it is a fair question. Um, but I know that a lot of people, very, you know, us included, a lot of distilleries uh, get, get kind of hush hush about that just because there are only so many inputs into the whiskey making process and yeast is a, a fairly significant one. So, um, yeah, we, we don't dive too deep into that much like other distilleries, but maybe, maybe one day we'll, we'll loosen up a little bit. <laughs> makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, so going back again, like I said, we'll go back to the barrel entry proof. Uh, and you said you've wanted to, this is what you said on, on stinker, drinker, thinker. Yeah. You can barely get that out. It's brilliant, but also a tongue twister that you, you, like I said, you're open to experimenting with the barrel entry proof. Yeah. Um, particularly as it pertains to different mash bills, different products that you're talking about uh, on the topic of variables. Yeah. You know, it seems like that's some, you, you control other variables like going I'm sorry, this is a long context for a question, so apologies yeah. in advance for that. But you know, you use the the yellow dent number two, Iowa corn. Yep. What's around you makes sense. Okay. The um the barrels new obviously for the bourbon, um, char number three. Yep. On that, uh, for the bourbon, uh, used mostly for the single malt. I know there are a couple of new ones thrown in sometimes, but mostly used barrels for the single malt. <laughs> That's correct. Um, so you know, and like I said, the proprietary yeast blend if you will yep so there are other variables that you've that you've clearly controlled along the way uh with thinking about experimenting with barrel proof uh, sorry barrel entry proof and yep. different mash bills what what kind of made you want to experiment with those variables in particular as opposed to the other ones that perhaps you can play with uh yeah good question i mean just i'm just kind of tinkering by nature. Um, it's something that I'm, I'm interested in. And there's been a lot of really good articles in, uh, in Whiskey Advocate, Distiller Magazine, uh, uh, things of that nature about um, barrel entry proof, but also slow proofing, um, slow cutting in barrel still. Um, and so that that's something that I'm not, you know, I, I wouldn't 
I wouldn't even begin to pretend like I'm super educated on it. And that's exactly why I want to explore it. Um, I like to, I like to explore the things that, that I don't really know a ton about. And so um, I do want to experiment with, uh, with barrel entry at slightly lower proofs. Um, I do want to compare, you know, our bourbon at, at 110 versus, um, versus 120 and, and see where it goes. I also want to um, do some experiments, which right now, logistically, this is fairly complicated with our setup, but eventually it, it won't be as much anymore. I do want to experiment with, uh, you know, if we've got, if we've got a barrel of whiskey at 120 and we're going to bottle it, I would like to slowly, like over the course of a couple months, slowly proof it down to say 92 or whatever we're going to release it at and see how that, uh, how that modifies the overall flavor profile versus uh, quickly cutting it down. You know, um, most distilleries and us, us included on that, we're going to, we're going to empty a barrel of whiskey and we're going to cut it with, with reverse osmosis water very quickly. I mean, and over the course of a day or two. And I, I am intrigued by some of the things that I've read of what can happen if, if you do day by day, you add a gallon here, a gallon there, and slowly proof it down over time. And uh, so they're just, those are a couple of variables, like you said, that I want to try, use the scientific method and just change one thing at a time and, and see what comes out of it. That's, uh, that's one of my favorite things about the whiskey industry is that, uh, you know, whiskey's been around forever. I mean, for so long. And we still don't entirely have this completely figured out yet. Um, there's still, there's so many new things that people are trying. There's so many different experiments that people are doing. And uh, I think it's really exciting times on that front. So yeah, specifically with the barrel entry proof, I, I want to, I want to play around with that a little bit. The other thing that I'm looking to do separately from that, because uh, once again, I only want to change one thing at a time, uh, <laughs> is I want to play around, play around with some different char levels. Um, I've been saying for a while that I'm going to do this and, I just never kind of get around to it. Um, our bourbon exclusively goes in char number three uh, from Independent Save, who you can't tell by my hat. I'm a, I'm a pretty big fan of it. I love Independent <laughs> Save, but um, I I want to experiment a little bit more with char number four. Uh, some of the guys on our team, uh, specifically John and Mike, uh, John's our, uh, our distillery manager and operations manager. He basically oversees the process uh, um, from basically mashing to barrel and I, I've, I've become more uh, master blender type setup, but uh, uh, John and Mike in particular, uh, we, we filled up a barrel of uh, char number four by accident one day, independent Dave. I think they accidentally just mixed a couple char number fours in with our char number threes. And it ended up being one of our favorite barrels on the property. So now obviously, you know, we need to experiment with that a little bit more and put some fours away. So uh, barrel entry proof and, and overall charter level are two things that we're looking to to modify as we move forward and just kind of just kind of see where they go. Wolfburn Distillery captures the spirit of Scotland's far north. As the northernmost distillery on the Scottish mainland, Wolfburn ties together long fermentation, slow distillation, and seaside maturation for unique and superb character. Originally founded in 1821, this exceptional distillery was restored in 2012 to its original greatness resurrecting a 200-year-old distillery on the largest blanket peat bog in all of Europe. Whether you're drinking Northland, Wolfburn's first expression, aged in American oak quarter casks, Aurora, a beautiful sherried whiskey laid down in a combination of bourbon and Oloroso sherry casks, Morburn, their lightly peated variety, or Langskip, their cast strength release. There's a Wolfburn for everyone. Arriving to the States later this year is their first permanent age state of release, the 10-year-old. 
You can also find small batch releases and limited edition bottlings at specialty retailers across the U.S. Reach out to our friends at Impex Beverages for more information on where to find your favorite expression. Wolfburn Distillery. Fortune favors the brave. I'm very curious, and I'll put this out right now, to see what you think of the different all, well, of the different entry proofs, but I'm also thinking, especially at the proofing process, is you've got, as you said, most of the industry is going to do it fairly quickly. A couple yep. of people are really preaching the slow proof method. I mean, Santa Fe yep. Spirits is probably the the longest proofing process I've heard of. It was about two months when I talked to them. Yep. Um, he, he's some, some, Santa Fe, by the way. Yep. Yeah, he's yeah. Colin is, Colin is great. Love the Cole Keegan line. Yep. Um, and you've got some in the middle that take a few weeks or a month. And what fascinates me most is that I see the the scientific side of it where you want to avoid the saponification, mm-hmm. you want to avoid shocking the whiskey into clumping yeah. up or whatever, um, whatever, such a scientific word. And, you know, you want to also on the other side, you got to put out product quickly. You know, you can't hold on to it for too long or it can change or, you know, things can happen. Mm-hmm. And what fascinates me most, I think, is that maybe within a week of talking to Colin, and this would have been last mm-hmm. year, um, I had the opportunity to be on a media event with um, Ian Sturzman, uh, then an MGP, now at Ross and Squibb, mm-hmm. depending on what product it is. Yeah. And I asked him directly, we were talking about the, I think we were talking about the Remus Repeal 6 at that point, not the Gatsby. It would have been the Remus Repeal 6. And um, that's at 50% and 100 proof. And I directly asked him, I said, look, what do you, how, what's your proofing process? Like, do you do slow proofing, fast proofing? Do you find a difference? And very quickly, you're just like, nope, we just do quick proofing. Yeah. You know, not a problem. So in very short time period, I, ha- I was talking to two different distilleries, obviously vastly different in size, in focus and all this, both putting out great whiskeys, yeah. doing it totally different way and seeing basically this mammoth company saying, no, we don't slow proof it. We just do it and it works. Yep. And this smaller company saying, no, you need to slow proof it. So um, I don't know exactly who's right. I see the scientific reasoning why you would want to slow proof, but it's not yep. like every MGP whiskey is, is saponifying when, you, when, you know, you buy a bottle of it or it wouldn't sell so much if it was. So yeah, I'm just, I'm curious to see what happens. Yeah. Um, and so am I, and there are so many, like, <laughs> there are so many debates in this industry about, about minor things like that. I mean, and, 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 you know, I shouldn't necessarily say that because I'm sure some people would say that that's a major thing. So I don't, I don't mean to uh, discredit that at all, but, you know, it's just kind of, uh, we, we all love this so much. We're all so passionate about it that we, we kind of find our little hills to die on and, uh, and, and get really opinionated on it's It's one of the fun things about it, but I mean, I'll, I'll take it a step further. There's, there's, you know, people who really preach slow proofing, people who say that fast proofing is totally fine. And then there's a, in, in the middle, there's, um, people who slow proof in tank and there are people who literally slow proof in barrel. Um, so there, there's like everything in between in there too. And, um, you know, it's, I think it's cool because at the end of the day, what we'll figure out over time is eventually, you know, we'll come to a conclusion on it and we'll, we'll figure out, no, uh, the data actually says that if we do, if we do this task this way, it, you know, X, Y, and Z happens and, and you want to consider that. So, uh, that, that's why I like this, once again, I'm I'm always kind of torn on, on the word, but the, the craft movement, if you will, because we're all kind of pioneering different different ideas and different concepts. I mean, mainly for the sake of differentiation, we all want to do things differently because uh, it differentiates the product and 
and that's a benefit to marketing and sales. But uh, you know, we're all we're all trying these different things, and eventually, it's going to lead to new techniques and new discoveries, and ultimately, it'll change the whiskey landscape. And so, you know, it's it's hard not to be excited about something like that. Absolutely. And uh, before we move on, I have to ask: Did you get to try the Maker's Mark DNA series? Uh, I, I have not yet. I actually have not tried that. Uh, I've seen uh, a, a ton of people who have, you know, I've, <laughs> I see a lot of that stuff, but have you? I did. I, I ran a class on it. I, um, I might have a set or two left over. I can, uh, well, Ooh. we'll talk about that off air. So um, <laughs> take it offline. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I'm just curious because that obviously would play quite into the barrel entry proof. So a good call. Um, all right. So, you know, bef- let's move on to the, uh, the single malt. I mean, Oh, yeah. So this was this was my intro to Cedar Ridge, and um, it was fascinating because when I drank it at first, I had this, in hindsight, really dumb um, thought come to my mind, thinking that was where the question of like, why is a single malt producer in the middle of Iowa? Um, yep. And then I learned, obviously, well, you know, the bulk of their sales are still bourbon, so that yep. may still makes total sense. But at the time, it, it was new. It was just like, why is it there? It's hot. Yep. But it is quite intriguing, as you said. It's in the style of a Scotch. Yep. But is an American single malt, so there are certain things that that means. Yeah. Uh, which uh, some of which you elucidated earlier, and then uh, you know we can go into a few more as well. But the, I, I guess for for you, what makes, what do you want to be the differentiator? To use your word, yeah. what do you want to be the differentiator for your American single malt? Um, I mean, it, well, uh, the, the process in particular, I guess, is what I, I'd say is the overall differentiator. Um, and yeah, kind of quickly touching on that again, I mean, being in the state of Iowa, and it doesn't necessarily make sense. Um, you know, within the, the American single whiskey category, there's obviously a fairly sizable debate over the concept of terroir or terroir, however you want to pronounce it. Um, you know, and, and there are a lot of distilleries that focus on uh, utilizing malted barley from as close to the, their distillery as possible. And I think that's really cool. Um, that, that's something that I'm, as someone who, you know, also oversees a winery that grows grapes and it makes wine from those grapes. I think that's uh, really neat and good, from the ca- good for the category. With that being said, in the state of Iowa, um, we don't really grow barley here. So that's, that's not really an option for us. So what we're doing is we're going a very different route. I'm, I'm pro the idea of terroir. Um, but we can't really embrace it here. So what we're doing that is kind of a differentiator is we're using the tools that we have at our disposal throughout the process. And I'll, I'll break that down for you here now. But the, the key element is that we're both a, a distillery who not only makes whiskey, but things like rum and brandy as well. And we're a winery. So we've got a lot of fun barrels around this property that we can utilize as finishing casks. So here's what we do. Um, I'll, I'll kind of skip over the mashing, fermentation, distillation, because we touched on that a little bit. But uh, once we're ready to throw our whiskey in barrel at 120 proof, uh, we will start it out in our ex-bourbon barrel. So all of our, all of our single malt starts out in ex-bourbon, and it goes, goes in those barrels for about four to five years. Eventually, what we do is we pull those barrels, we empty them out, and we move that whiskey, and we cast transfer that whiskey into a unique finishing cask of some kind. And that's where our wine barrels, our brandy barrels, our rum barrels are utilized as well. I, I, I also want to mention, I bring in barrels from all over the country. Uh, we don't produce much rum and brandy here. So uh, we bring in a lot of other rum and brandy barrels from, from other distilleries. 
Uh, I source a lot of empty sherry butts from Spain, uh, a lot of port pipes. Uh, we also make our own uh, version of American port and our own uh, Madeira style wine here so we can utilize those casks. Basically what I'm saying is after we empty those ex bourbon barrels, we fill up all these unique casks with that single malt and let it finish out for a couple more years. At the end of that process, what we do is we bring in those individual casks, those unique casks. We lay them across our distillery floor. We taste through them all and determine which of them should go in our 1100 gallon Solera vat, which will currently be half full. We'll fill it up. We'll bottle it halfway down. We'll fill it up. We'll bottle it halfway down. So the, the whole thought process, the whole thing that we're trying to accomplish here is we have this 1100 gallon Solera vat that uh, is constantly evolving in flavor profile and constantly gaining character and it never goes empty. So we're utilizing all these different finishing casks. We're utilizing uh, single malt finish and sherry butts, single malt finish and brandy to manipulate that and, and, to, and to evolve the, uh, the Solera vat as kind of a finishing process. So that's what we're doing. Um, it creates a very complex final product. My favorite thing about that product is when you sit down and enjoy it, you can really, really study it. Um, it's, it's not going to be one noted. It's, it's going to have a lot going on in it. And as a distiller, I like to sit down and, and take a sip of it and, and find the notes that come from, uh, say, an X pear brandy cask. I like to sit down and find the notes that come from uh, a, a rum cask or, or a sherry. But um, I think that that's really fun. And so uh, the process itself is what differentiates us. It's also something that, that is very exciting for the team. You know, it keeps us on our toes. Uh, it helps us develop our palates because we're constantly trying all these different types of single malt. And it just makes a really fun product that I think contributes really well to the overall uh, American single malt whiskey movement. So uh, I had to take a, a breather just because there there's... A lot. <laughs> so many questions I want to ask there too. I mean, <laughs> but you're right that you can experiment with so many things. And um, oh, before I forget, there was a question on what something that stood out in there too, which was, well, I did like the idea. I, I like that you pointed out that you were pro terroir, but practicality yeah. is practicality. So, um, well, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it, terroir is an <laughs> awesome, awesome concept. And I, I really, really hope that that's something that it picks up, I mean, catches on, but it's also, it's only really relevant in, in, in certain areas of the country. I mean, you know, it, I like the idea of everyone being able to produce it and not everyone, you know, is, is right by a, a barley field, which is totally fine. Um, I think that's kind of one of the, the neat elements of it, just like a, a lot of wineries, I mean, uh, bring in grapes from elsewhere and, and make, make their own wines from them. I think that's really neat. But uh, another thing of the, the terroir that, that is an interesting concept of it all is, you know, with, with wine, it's super simple. I mean, you know, you, you have these grapes that grow close to your building and, and, and you process it into wine. And in the final product, I mean, you can, you can pick up the soil. You know, you can, someone can drink a bottle of wine like my dad is a big wino. He can drink a bottle of wine and have a pretty accurate guess of where it came from as far as region goes. Well, with single malt, I mean, that, that's definitely possible. And like I said, I'm very pro terroir, but it's also fairly complicated depending on how you process it uh, through the distillation process and barrel aging. There's so many things that you can do to that distillate that are going to modify it and make it difficult to pick up on. So if you're, you know, if you're doing uh, single malt 
and you're uh, just throwing it in, say, X bourbon casks that are fairly neutral, letting it age, and that's the end of the process, I think that you can definitely pick up on the terroir. If you're doing it the way that we do at Cedar Ridge, you're not going to be able to. And that's why I mentioned it because we're, it's going into so many different casks. And then we're also, one thing I hadn't mentioned is that there's also a slight peat element to it. About once a year, we'll produce between 10 and 20 barrels of peated single malt whiskey. And those will get married into our Solera vet over time and to kind of add to that complexity as well. So we, we're creating such a complex concoction or, or marriage is the technical term. We're creating such a, a complex marriage of single malt that even if this barley was grown right outside my window here, um, we wouldn't be able to pick up on that. So that, that's kind of why I mentioned it is because the process that we utilize here uh, would make that impossible. Whereas um, the process that, uh, that uh, some of the people are using out on like the West Coast uh, is it, genius. I, I'm really, really excited. As a, as a whiskey geek myself, I, I really uh, look forward to seeing them continue to develop that. And so the, oof, we got to touch on the Pete. The, <laughs> with the Solaric uh, vats, they're, they're about 1,100 gallons. Um, yep. You said you fill it by halfway and then you, bar, you uh, bottle it down. Yep. Um, about how low do you get with those before you start filling it back up? Um, oh, oh sorry, sorry. So we, we fill it all the way up and we bottle it halfway down. So there's, there's oh, okay. a halfway okay. point on our vat. So it's an 1,100-gallon tank. You know, roughly five to 550 gallons will be left in it. And then once that happens, you know, we, that's when it's time to fill it back up. And it, it is, we do it about once a month at this point, and it's going to happen more and more as we go forward, but it is the best day of the month because, you know, we, we all get to taste what's in the vat and then we all get to taste like 20 different barrels of single malt. So we'll, we'll get people, you know, from, from our front of house, uh, obviously the whole production team to come try all these barrels, because that, that's like the exciting part of working in this industry is getting to experiment things or experience things like that. And so it's, it's like the best day of the month when we have all these fun finishing casts in there. We all kind of just uh, team up, taste the room together. And I, I, you know, can say that I am very fortunate to be the person who has the final say of which barrels get to go in that vat. But uh, I have a extremely skilled team that, uh, that I, I do rely on to kind of help me make some final decisions on that from time to time. And with the Slaravats too, uh, last question, because that just came up to me too, was there, uh, there are pictures of it on the website. They look very nice. They look like you know, very, very large format barrels yep. on the outside, but on the inside, is it uh, wood? Is it inert container? Um, yeah, it's wood. It's, it's, a, it's a toasted wood. So these are actually, um, these Slaravats, they were really designed, I, I believe, for wine production originally, um, but they happen to work perfectly for what we're doing. So uh, the interior of the vat, although it is wood, it's neutral. It's not going to really impart much flavor. It's really uh, a marrying vessel. Um, I mean, it probably does just a touch more than, than if it was stainless steel. I mean, I think there, there, there are some benefits to utilizing it. Uh, you know, otherwise, we would just have a stainless steel tank. But uh, uh, yeah, they're 1,100 gallon wooden vats, and the inside is is a toasted wood that should be fairly neutral. All right. So with the now going on to that peat, uh, are you? Yeah. How are you imparting the peat? At what point during the process? Um, yeah. So it that is all. It's all done completely separately. So we, we mash it separately from our normal single malt. We distill it separately, and we barrel age it separately. So uh, that it will also go in X bourbon barrels, but. 
I mentioned earlier that our single malt, we cast transfer all of that to unique finishing casks after about four to five years of aging. Uh, the peated single malt, we do not. It stays in its ex-bourbon barrel the whole time. We really want to keep that intact. And then um, I will I'll marry, I'll marry a bit of that into basically every other batch. Um, and an 1,100-gallon vat, if you dump a full 53-gallon barrel of peated single malt <laughs> into it, it's mainly yeah. going to taste like peated malt. Um, as a matter of fact, I did do that once. Um, uh, I tried, like I said, I, th this product, it does evolve batch by batch. Um, batch five and batch six are going to be fairly similar to one another, but batch five versus batch 20 will probably be fairly different because over time, you know, as we empty this thing halfway down and fill it back up so many times, over time, it's going to kind of head in a direction. And well, the, the only time I kind of shocked that system a little bit is batch five, which in Iowa has um, kind of become a little bit of a hunted item because it is different. And that's, um, since it was batch five and quint means five, um, I was like, you know, I'm going to kind of make this a little bit geared towards my personal palate. And uh, I decided to peat it up quite a bit more than, than previous batches. So I did kind of shock the system in batch five uh, just for funsies. But uh, yeah, that peat, I don't usually throw whole barrels at a time in. Uh, I'll usually do about a half barrel um, and, and, usually every other batch makes sense. I mean, Pete's it can be pretty overpowering, but, uh, it, it let's check, let's check which batch I got. Uh, I think, I don't know. I, I should have brought the bottles in and I forgot but right before. Um, yeah. But, um, so with the, with the Pete, are you uh, bringing in the, the malts already peated? Um, or are you, you know, are you peating it yeah. on site? Um, no, we, we do bring it in peatland uh, directly, or sorry, we do bring it in peated <laughs> directly from Scotland. Um, that uh, ironically, that we do this once a year, um, and it only lasts about four or five days, and we are doing it right now. So uh, it is it, it is fresh on my mind. I'm super excited about it. Uh, John and our, our team of uh, distillers, we we mash around the clock from Sunday to Friday, so we take Saturday off, and in this weekend or this week rather um, is is the week of mash and peat. So. Uh, we've got that going on right now. It does come from Scotland. Um, we had used Baird's heavily peated malt. Um, however, unfortunately, there was actually a fire there. And so uh, for the first time this year, we have actually switched our source and we're, we're mashing a different, uh, a, a somewhat different uh, barley this year and, and excited to see how it goes. You know, it's kind of always a fun experiment, but uh, we had been pretty brand loyal to that Baird's heavy malt, and uh, it's made a really good product for us in the past. And so we'll see how this new one does. Yeah, fair enough. All right, I think. Uh, and all right, so the, the last question that I wanted to ask. Yeah. Today, and uh, as I said, there are other things we didn't get to. Um, definitely listen to yeah. the um, the playlist that I'll create, also in the tasting notes. So we things like the uh, aging process, uh, the the way the rickhouses are set up yep. um, with the five, five barrels high, uh, things like that. Those will definitely be in the notes as well. So if you're not listening to a long uh, playlist, <laughs> don't worry, they'll be in there too. Um, but the thing that I wanted to end on was something that I've been thinking of more and more recently as I look through brands and it's the thing that we look at as a consumer before we ever taste the whiskey. And that is the label. Yes. And uh, you mentioned it on, 
you know, I'm not sure which one. It was uh, a while ago. I think it was in maybe 2000 or so. Um, might have been single malt matters. But anyway, so the point was that Probably. if you look at your your bourbon label versus the single malt label, they're yep. very different. It, in many ways, I think you wouldn't even think it's from the same company. Yep. The bourbon one is, if you forgive the word typical, like typical American whiskey, bold, big lettering. This is bourbon. This is barrel aged. It's got the red tint to it. That's like, you know, powerful um, in a way. And then the single malt, to me, I looked at that bottle and it reminded me of independent bottlings from Scotland yep. that have tons of text on the label and <laughs> notes and, you know, every single part that'll, you know, parceled off. So um, I'm just curious what the process was like choosing to present your products mm-hmm. in such a way that it evoked those two things and choosing to do to do it separately and to not make them, you know, from the eye, the same product or the same product line. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I'm, I'm glad you asked that one too, because it, it, it's a really fun question. And um, a lot of us don't think about it. And some of us maybe don't want to admit it, but we all label shop in a way. I mean, the, the first interaction you're going to have with pretty much any whiskey on the shelf is seeing that label. And so, I mean, I, I'm a, a whiskey consumer, maybe even a bit of a whiskey hunter, just like many of the other people I'm sure that are uh, tuning into this. And uh, we we all, whether we like to admit or not, we kind of bite on that label. And yeah, to your point, um, uh, traditional American whiskeys, uh, the label of them is basically, let's see how big we can get that brand name and how far across the room we can read it from. And, that, and we're very much uh, in line with that strategy. That is the traditional American label. Um, think, think Maker's Mark, Elijah Craig, Cedar Ridge, uh, whatever it is, uh, most of the label is actually going to go to that brand name. So if you're at you know, a, a club in, say, Chicago, and you're 40 feet away from that bottle, you can actually see it sitting on the bar shelf. It's, it's very strategic. Um, and in a way, it, it, it's great. I actually have always really admired uh, the, the Scotch style, and mainly because I'm kind of one, I, I, I enjoy graphic design, but I'm also a whiskey geek, obviously. And the traditional Scotch style is to use a little bit smaller type, uh, flowier, uh, more elegant font, but also they get a little bit more descriptive of what you can expect from that bottle. You know, there's going to be a little bit more detail on the label of what it is. Uh, I've always been an admirer of Balvenie and, and a number of others, but uh, so anyway, uh, in about 2019 is when we rebranded our single malt from just Cedar Ridge single malt. You know, we had Cedar Ridge bourbon, Cedar Ridge rye, and Cedar Ridge single malt. Uh, fairly simple setup. And uh, in 2019, we kind of uh, rebranded that to the quintessential. And when we did it, we had this thought in mind, and that's that the, the American consumer right now is really struggling to understand what American single malt whiskey is. That is still somewhat the case, much less than it was in 2019. And so what we decided to do was to dress our bottle up like you'd see um, most gotchas. I mean, to have that smaller type and, and flowier, more elegant fonts and not see how big we can make the brand name on the label. And what would naturally happen is people will see it on the shelf and their brain kind of just assumes what it's going to taste like. They can kind of make an assumption of what to expect from that bottle. And in addition to that, single malt, it, it's, Barley is a more expensive grain, so by nature, it's going to be a higher price point. And uh, by having a little bit more fancified label, uh, you can naturally, 
the psychology of it all, you can justify a slightly higher price point. So it was very strategic, but ultimately it was to bridge the gap between the, the American consumer's perception and uh, what we're trying to do, what we're trying to build, which is this American single malt whiskey in a category that's a little bit unknown. So it, it is very strategic. Um, and, you know, we're, we're going to continue to kind of, you'll see more evolutions of that quintessential label uh, down the road. It's still a work in progress, but we will, we will always maintain that somewhat scotch-like setup and format uh, just so that the consumer can kind of make the assumption of what to expect from it. All right. And there you have it, folks. So Murphy, thank you so much for taking the time. Let's talk through Cedar Ridge, the process, the story, everything about it tonight. Um, like I said, there's so much we didn't get to talk about, of course, that's just how it goes. But uh, I am very excited to see where the brand is going now. I've got the bioproof bourbon. I've got the quintessential malt. I've still got a little bit left of that Lost Lantern bottle. Oh, so man. I polish that off and I can't get it anymore. It's a shame, but I'll just have to get the next one. So that's fine. Um, so thank you so much for coming on. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, yeah, first of all, thanks so much for having me. This, this has been a ton of fun and, um, hopefully we can do it again at some point in the future, uh, follow episode, follow up episodes are always fun. So, um, mm-hmm. where, where can people find us? Uh, so Cedar Ridge, obviously Cedar Ridge whiskey.com or, or Cedar Ridge distillery.com. We have both of them. Uh, and then, uh, social media, Cedar Ridge, Iowa is usually our handle. So check us out on pretty much any platform. I also do have uh, my own Instagram. If you kind of want to get some fun behind the scenes shots of what we do at Cedar Ridge, just murphy.quint on Instagram. And uh, uh, yeah, uh, there's one last note on the uh, the quintessential, just because it's something that's very near and dear to my heart. And, and you mentioned the Lost Lantern one, which is one of my all-time favorites. I, I do want to mention that uh, we've got some fun special release quintessentials coming out. Uh, which you'll see more on my Instagram and the Cedar Ridge uh, social media accounts. But uh, we're we're doing some true task strength special release stuff uh, just because that's what we want to do. And I think that's kind of what consumers want to see from us. So keep an eye out for some uh, quintessential special release. We've got one that we're getting ready to bottle here over the next couple of weeks and uh, hope hope to see it out in the market soon. Fantastic. So uh, as and there'll be links to the website to where to buy to the social media links in the show notes as well if uh, you, you're driving you know please don't go there while you're driving so uh, those will all be in the show notes for your reference to you so once again Murphy thanks so much hang on with me for a sec uh, after we close out and this has been another episode of the Whiskering Podcast I'll see you all next week see you later hey folks thanks for listening to another episode of the Whiskering Podcast if you like what you hear please go ahead and click that subscribe, follow, or like button. Leave a rating review on your podcast app of choice and let me know what you want to hear. You can reach out to me through the podcast apps or email me at david at whiskeymywedderring.com with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskeymywedderring. That's whiskey with an E for as little as a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you access to bonus content including our soon-to-resume Under the Influencer series, and $25 a month means you join the Barrel Share Club. Each month, Barrel Share Club members get to try products sent to me for review, bottles from my own collection, and sometimes bottles that I just pick up because they're fun or interesting. Right now, only five spots remain in the Barrel Share Club, so grab your place today. Finally, please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at WhiskeyMyWeddingRing or at WhiskeyRingPodcast. You can follow me on Twitter at WhiskeyRing. You can follow on Facebook 
at Whiskey My Wedding Ring or join the Facebook group, the Whiskey Ringers group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers. Thank you for the support and see you next time.